Boris Johnson's demise meant Britain could have had a serious prime minister. Instead, we're likely to get Liz Truss. I'll be joined in a few moments by Aaron Bastani. We're going to discuss her campaign. We also have loads of other big stories tonight. The media are still ignoring the contents of the Ford report. Quite incredible, the magazines who haven't even done a single article on it. They spent years putting on the front pages random comments that, you know, someone with 100 followers had. You know, that, that could be front page news. Now we've got a report out, very, very meaty, some quite astonishing findings. No one cares. We're going to talk about that. We're also um, talking about Martin Lewis promoting direct action. Mick Lynch is back on the BBC. And Nadine Doris has got something right. Now, we're going to leave that one till last. So you better wait for that. Try and guess what it is. If you haven't been on Twitter in the, in the last couple of days, you might not know yet. It's been just over 48 hours since Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak made it to the final round of the Tory leadership contest. And a new YouGov poll shows one of them has a whopping advantage. When Tory members were asked how they would vote, 49% said Truss, with only 31% saying Sunak. If don't knows are excluded, Truss has a massive 24-point lead. It's a pretty big deficit for Sunak to surmount, and that's especially as Truss has been doubling down on a topic popular with the Tory base, tax cuts. Speaking to the BBC's Nick Robinson, she defended her tax-cutting agenda. My tax cuts will decrease inflation. Really? Because what they Can do... Can you point to a single chancellor, a single governor of the Bank of England, single leading economist who thinks that cutting taxes with borrowed money does anything other than increase inflation? Patrick Minford, who's written an article about it this weekend. There's one. The, the, There's one. But, he, he is distinguished in many ways. But he is not what I just listed. He's not one of the leading economic thinkers in this country. Nick, we have had a consensus of the Treasury, of economists, of the Financial Times, of other, other outlets peddling a particular type of economic policy for the last 20 years. In that interview, Truss also claimed that tax cuts could boost growth and prevent a recession, and that tax cuts would boost government revenue. So sort of a reimagination of, of the Laffer curve, very much discredited. I'm joined now by Aaron Bastani. As we heard there, everything Liz Truss is talking about is pretty unconventional economics. Should we care? We should care, Michael. Um, it, it is interesting to see a Tory leader, potentially. I mean, she, she looks like she's going to be the odds-on um, success to Boris Johnson favourites to basically lean into deficit-funded tax cuts. It is interesting. And for the BBC, Nick Robinson to say, well, all the senior economists say this, you know, it's reminiscent of when they used to say that to Nigel Farage about Brexit. And they would say, well, the WTO say this. And he would say, who the hell are the WTO? <laughs> this is what we're going to do. You know, the question is, of course, have the electorate had enough of that? Has that genre of politics failed? I would be very wary of the left also defending establishment neoclassical economics but I think it almost certainly would push up inflation, or we'd have to increase interest rates. But this is for another time. You know, I think you made a very good point back in the day, Michael, that when we had very low inflation, like 1%, big program of public spending, public works, which was being touted by Labour in 2017, 2019, actually, that's a good way to bump up inflation, 2 3 4%, when you have ultra-low inflation. We've come out of that. We've now got 9.4% inflation on CPI, 11.8% on RPI, which includes mortgage costs. That is the real rate of inflation. CPI is kind of cooking the books. So it's more or less 12%. So what is she, what she's saying here 
it's highly risky, but she's also saying in, a, in a, an incredibly sort of dismissive way, that's the best criticism and she, she's not taking it seriously. It is interesting. I, I do think Labour will have a problem here because they don't necessarily have an answer. They can take the sort of Institute for Fiscal Studies line and have a technocratic response, which is to say, you know, this, this probably won't add up. Tax cuts, almost everyone agree, are, are inflationary, at least in the short term. I mean, if you think that they lead to growth in the long term, which personally, you know, if you look at the past... 20 years of British politics, they don't seem to. We've had a bunch of tax cuts in the last 12 years and growth has been anemic. But if you do buy into that line, it can be the case, theoretically, that it would lower inflation in the long term. But in the short term, everyone agrees, neoliberal, left-wing, whatever, that that's probably going to cause further inflation in the short term. Obviously, I think Labour should be saying, yeah, don't don't worry about Liz Truss saying she's going to go into further debt. She's actually absolutely right that's saying that COVID debt should be treated like a wartime debt, but she is wasting all of that on badly targeted tax cuts when what we should be doing is investing in public services which are uh, you know, at the brink of collapse after 12 years, something you're not going to hear from Liz Truss. And we will come back to policy, but it's her general wooden aura which has been getting just as much attention when it comes to a potential PM trust. And, and that's included the recirculation of this clip from 2014. Our exports have increased by more than a billion pounds over the past four years. And the results are superb. They are absolutely superb. We are growing wheat more competitively than the Canadian prairies. We're producing more varieties of cheese than the French. And we are selling tea to China. <laughs> Yorkshire tea. <laughs> when it comes to British food and drink, we have never had it so good. <laughs> but as well as exporting our fantastic food abroad, I want to see us eating more British food here in Britain. At the moment, we import two-thirds of all of our apples. We import nine-tenths of all of our pears. We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. From the apples that dropped on Isaac Newton's head to the orchards of nursery rhymes, this fruit has always been part of Britain. It's been part of our country. I want our children to grow up knowing the taste of a British apple, of Cornish sardines, of Herefordshire pears, of Norfolk turkey, of Melton Mowbray pork pies, and of course, of black pudding. Yeah. <laughs> Under a Conservative government, Britain will lead the world in food, farming and the environment. In a fortnight, I'm going to Paris for the world's largest food trade fair and I will be bigging up British products. In December, 
I'll be in Beijing opening up new pork markets. That was Truss as Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. That was under David Cameron, so eight years ago. Eight years later, though, the awkward energy hasn't gone away. He will have to move out at that point, that is true. <laughs> it's always the school visits that are the most dangerous. I love it. Aaron, Liz Truss, pretty weird. You know, we've, we've, we've briefly talked about a policy. We're going to talk about it again later in the show in a different section, actually. But th- does it matter that she's so weird? You know, th- th- there was a sort of, you know, when Boris Johnson's down for Bagan, you know, lots of people saying it's time for serious politics. What we need is, you know, someone who doesn't look like an idiot on the world stage. And now we're going to end up with seems, if the polls are correct, with Liz Truss. What should we make of that? Well, you're asking two separate questions there. I mean, somebody can look strange and odd without being an idiot. I mean, there are very many intelligent people, senior civil servants, people in politics, very successful who aren't particularly good communicators. I don't think Liz Truss is down as a good communicator. The problem is it doesn't, it doesn't seem, I mean, we could be wrong, it doesn't seem like there's the grey matter behind the eyeballs either. So generally in politics, you need one of the two. But then again, look, we, 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 we don't know. We don't know. We, you know. It's easy to say this stuff. You know, maybe, maybe she's doing what she has to do in order to become the Tory prime minister because you have a selectorate of guys in their 60s in the southeast of England who love Margaret Thatcher. And that's, that's you know, monomaniacally what she's pursued for the last two years or since she's been a Tory MP, really. Maybe that's the case. But from the available evidence, she, she doesn't seem especially smart. I think people go overboard and say, oh, she's really stupid. She clearly has... Um, she has a, an ideology, she has an economic orthodoxy, which she believes in. You see that in Britannia Unchained, this incredibly strange book uh, co-published by a bunch of Tory MPs um, more than a decade ago now. Uh, she believes in low tax. She believes in the free market. She thinks if you have less state and you have more free market and you get taxes as low as possible, then magically you'll get growth and productivity and innovation and rising living standards, which at this point really... 14 years after the global financial crisis, more closely resembles a theology than a set of political convictions, because, of course, Britain reduced its corporation tax already after the Cameron government in 2010. It's the lowest of the G7. I think it went down as low as 15%. I think it's presently 17%. The plan is to get it up again into the mid-20s. Under Margaret Thatcher, it was 34%. That was the lowest corporation tax was ever under Margaret Thatcher. So, historically speaking, we have incredibly low corporation tax, yet Britain still has a very low, extraordinarily low, it should be said, productivity, innovation economy, flat living standards, flat wages. So we've had a 14-year experiment basically showing that what she thinks, a 12-year experiment, showing, demonstrating, concluding that what she thinks will work doesn't work. And yet, Bizarrely, all of these people and their, their favourable media outlets like The Spectator and so on seem to think we haven't, we haven't tried it yet. We haven't tried cutting corporation tax. Well, we did that and it was a complete failure. So is she stupid? Seems like it. Could be wrong. Is she charismatic and interesting? Absolutely not at all. I think that's confirmed. I think worst of all, though, is the fact that she has these commitments, these ideas, these orthodoxies, which all available, available evidence shows have failed. 
That for me is the most worrying part of Liz Truss. She's a fanatic for a failed creed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think corporation tax didn't go any lower than 18%, but, it, but Jeremy Hunt and Sajid Javid wanted it to go to 15%, so, so it could have got worse. I think um, Liz Truss is, is more intimating she'll, she'll leave it where it is. Next story. As we explained on Wednesday's show, the Ford report, while critical of Corbyn's leadership, confirmed that complaints had been handled factionally by the Labour Party's right. It also found that media reporting around the leadership's supposed complicity in anti-Semitism was wholly misleading. Now, you might think this should be of interest to journalists who were obsessed with reporting on every minor detail of anti-Semitism and Labour for almost five years. But still, the release of the report has been met with virtual silence. For its part, the BBC has put out only one article on the report. It has this very bland headline, Anti-Semitism used as factional weapon within Labour, says reporters. The only article they've got, the only headline they've got. And it expands on that headline like this. So it says, Mr Ford's inquiry began in April 2020 after an 860-page dossier dated March 2020 was leaked. This is the Labour leaks. It contained private WhatsApp messages and claimed some Labour workers had not wanted Mr Corbyn on the party's left to win the 2017 general election and had hindered efforts to tackle anti-Semitism. The dossier found no evidence of anti-Semitism being handled differently from other complaints and blamed factional opposition towards Mr Corbyn. So still talking about that Labour leaks report. But Mr Ford's report says factionalism was endemic within Labour and the issue of anti-Semitism was weaponized by both sides, not just the party's right. Now that framing makes me want to tear my hair out. Obviously that would be difficult, maybe scratch it out. The implication there is that everyone already knew the anti-Semitism issue had been exploited by the right and that the real takeaway from the Ford report was that the left also behaved factionally. So the big takeaway from this report, it wasn't just the right who behaved factionally when it came to anti-Semitism. But what does that ignore? Is that if you went on the BBC and suggested anti-Semitism was exaggerated or weaponized by the right between the years of 2015 and 2019, you'd be called an anti-Semite, an apologist, and a conspiracy theorist. Now, apparently it's just common sense. Oh yeah, the, re the report says that the right treated anti-Semitism factionally. We all knew that, didn't we? It says the left also did as well. But that's the big takeaway from this. As I say, it boggles the mind. I suppose I, it doesn't boggle the mind that I can see, I can see why they're doing this, but it's incredibly frustrating. Anyway, that was the BBC. And you might say, you know, ignoring the content, they're a big organization. It was a big news week. Just one article on an internal report into a political party in opposition. That's enough. So let's look at an outlet more committed to reporting on Labour stories, perhaps the New Statesman. Surely they'd have something to say. Well, I've searched their website and Twitter today. There is not a single article on the Ford Report. And I also listened to their podcast. There is not a single mention of the Ford Report. On that podcast, though, they did find time to say this about Boris Johnson's leaving speech. Even more sinister, perhaps, than calling his colleagues the herd. He did invoke the deep state, which is sort of catnip to conspiracy theorists, isn't it? It, it is. It's a very, very Trump-like line, this idea that people who have been elected into power can't actually exercise that power because there's this hidden, shadowy world of nameless officials you... who are working against them. John Elledge, one of our you say it's been columnists, has just co-written a book specifically on conspiracy theories uh, and conspiracy theorists and why people fall for them and how it all works. And he's written a piece about that line, sort of the deep state and how useful and effective it is for people in power because suddenly 
you've got power, you don't deliver on what you said you were going to, your voters say, hang on, you said you're going to do X, Y and Z, you were Prime Minister, why didn't you? And if you can say, oh, I tried to, but actually there was this hidden enemy that stopped me, it wasn't my fault. Mm. That's a very effective narrative. It's also a very dangerous narrative. You can already hear Liz Truss in her first interviews, as are on the last two candidates, talking about the need to kind of push the blob Mm. and deal with the civil service blob. Blob is a softer way of saying deep state, I think, in yeah. all of this. Of course, if we weren't working for the new statesman and signed up to all of this, we would be able to inform people listening to this podcast or watching it that in, indeed Whitehall is populated by shape-shifting lizards controlled by Bill <laughs> Gates because, because that's what they think. Yeah, uh, our think, hands are tied. Our hands are tied. We're not allowed to say that. Yeah. But it's true, guys. It's really true. It's honestly true. There are shape-shifting lizards all around us and they're working for the deep state. I have personally been called an elitist lizard. I'm not sure about either of you. Right. That's my favourite Twitter insult an ever. Lizard. An elitist lizard, yeah. <laughs> not one of the more lizards of the people. I, and I am, wearing, I am wearing green today, so I've, make of that what I've you will. I've been called many Anglo-Saxon things, but not that one. <laughs> that was the new statesman team chortling at the idea that unelected people could possibly be undermining democratically elected politicians. Well, perhaps they should have read the Ford report, which includes these findings. The conviction that the end of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, be it brought about by the PLP or electoral disaster, would be good for the party underpinned and was reinforced by the WhatsApp discussions between senior staff members. It seems to us indisputable that it gave rise to a conflict of interests. The report also says, it is true that members of the SMT WhatsApp groups, so senior management team WhatsApp groups, were focused on what they saw as protecting the party from Jeremy Corbyn rather than helping him to advance his agenda. Some comments do appear to show straightforward attempts to hinder Lotto's work. Lotto stands for leader of the opposition's office. Now, with respect to the 2017 general election, the report finds this. Some senior HQ staff had the ability to implement resourcing decisions covertly. A handful of staff in Ergon House created an additional fund for printing costs under the code GEL001, spending some £135,000 in total on campaigns supportive of sitting largely anti-Corbyn MPs and not on campaigns for pro-Corbyn candidates in potentially Tory winnable seats. The decision to set up the Ergon House operation covertly and divert money and personnel there without the authority of the cam campaign committee, whilst not illegal, departed from the approved strategy. It was as such wrong. And it goes on to say it was unequivocally wrong for HQ staff to pursue an alternative strategy covertly. We are absolutely clear that this should never have happened. And we consider that the anger amongst the membership regarding the issue is justified. Now, the Ford report also concluded that unelected staff attempted to swing two democratic internal elections. So they said, in our view, the intention and effect of both validation exercises was to remove ballots from individuals who would otherwise have voted for Jeremy Corbyn. So the validation exercises there being who is and who isn't entitled to join the Labour Party, kicking people out who they think might vote for, for Jeremy Corbyn. Now, what bugs me here if you made any of those claims between 2015 and 2019, I have no doubt that someone like Andrew Marr would have called you a conspiracy theorist and made some jokes about lizards. Aaron, are you surprised at all they're ignoring a report which shows just how much they got wrong? Absolutely not. I'm absolutely not surprised in the slightest, Michael, particularly with the New Statesman. Rachel Cunliffe, who was on that podcast, and I did Sky News with her once, and all she did was just, she did 20 minutes of outrage. Everything I said, she was just outraged. <laughs> Oh, you know, like, no, I no, I don't think half a million Labour members are all 
racists. No, I'm, I meet lots of them. They're like nice old ladies. They're young students. They're they're people involved in disability rights activism. They're the bedrock of their communities. <laughs> just like you know, I was like, you're not a normal, healthy, happy person here. Let's just kind of park that. And I know that sounds nasty, Michael, but a lot of legacy media talk to one another, and you know they have their beats. And generally speaking, in terms of broader civil society outside of London, outside the M25, people who don't think like them, don't talk like them, don't earn the same kinds of money they do. Not that there's huge amounts of money in legacy media for many people, though it can take you in the right direction if you want to go into lobbying or corporate affairs or whatever. There is just an impatience and an incuriosity for people who aren't like them. And I think just listening to that conversation was just, you know, completely emblematic of that. There's, there's loads of conspiracy theories out there. Sure there are. And there are other conspiracy theories, like Saddam Hussein in Iraq did 9-11. I think 70% of Americans believed that in, in 2002. There was, there was a poll about that. That was a conspiracy theory peddled by the United States of America. So, you know, and that was a conspiracy theory which led to uh, the United States and its allies invading Iraq and destabilizing a region and a million people dying. And that's quite a powerful conspiracy theory. But you, you don't think that's a conspiracy theory. And as I said on Wednesday, Michael, we talked about the Ford Report, of course, then I wrote a piece on it too. There are dozens of paragraphs in this report, in the Ford Report, and I wrote this piece and I've, I've quoted the paragraphs, but there are dozens of them where if you said anything like that, this is written by a QC on the BBC or Sky or the New Statesman podcast or the Guardian podcast, anywhere, anywhere, Channel 4 News, if you'd said anything like these paragraphs, you would have been mocked, derided, castigated and cancelled. Not just by the people sitting alongside you who are meant to be articulating an opposing point of view. That's, that's fine. That's, that's how, it, how it's set up in legacy media. Often that's not a good thing, but that's how it's set up. But also by the host. The host would be chortling, oh, what a ridiculous thing to say. You know, oh, the, no, these quotes were cherry-picked on WhatsApp. Well, actually, Martin Ford is saying that the quotes that we first broke in that story from the senior management team were actually reflective and representative of what he calls, quote, discriminatory attitudes from the senior management of a political party. But apparently that's not a big deal for the new statesman. Now, let's just reverse this a little bit. Imagine if there was a left-wing leadership of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, General Secretary, and they'd been found to have discriminatory attitudes in private communications in a WhatsApp group. If they'd been found to shift resources around in a way that the, the elected leadership wasn't aware of. If they had been rather underhand in internal elections, not once, but twice, if that was all a left-wing leadership, Michael, the New Statesman would have a podcast series. They would have a series of long reads. They'd probably hire a sort of professional deputy editor and you know, associate editor and contributing editor just to do that. They would make it like a whole strand of their work. Business, politics, climate, labor leaks. It would be a whole thing. It would be like, be like the Mueller report. But because it's a left-wing leadership that was absolutely hobbled and undermined by a, by a nasty right-wing operation, it doesn't matter. It doesn't even, doesn't even merit one article. One article. This would have been six months of reporting if it was the other side. Now, you can only moan and complain so much. We know all of this. We know all of this. What I find most remarkable, Michael, is the people talking on that podcast, they don't think they're doing anything wrong. They think they're on the right. And it goes to show how the most intelligent people can have the most incoherent, prejudicial, double-sided thinking on something. Because you can become so intelligent and so well-read, you become stupid because you can convince yourself of anything. And that's something, the older I get, the more I realize the most credentialed, intelligent, well-educated people, because they think, well, I'm intelligent, I'm well-educated, and the people I hang out with are all well-educated and intelligent, well, whatever they think, 
then that must be true. And then those other people over there, they're not as well educated. And so they must be wrong. That's how the media thinks itself into these moronic positions, completely at odds, not just with what some other people are saying, but empirical facts and reality, as is the case with the Ford report. Keeps on happening, and it keeps on happening for a reason. I mean, you used the word curiosity earlier. I, I do, that's just what screams out at me from listening to that segment of that podcast, which is I've never heard three less curious people, you know, on, on the topic of potentially things aren't exactly how they see, you know, because this isn't like mad conspiracy theories, you know, that there's this very small group of people that control everything. All they were discussing is the idea that sometimes there might be unelected people who potentially limit the options that elected people have. That's not an extremist position. They're like, oh, <laughs> God, not only is that ridiculous, it's dangerous to even suggest that. You're supposed to be journalists. Like, historically, the role of journalism was almost, that was kind of the raison d'etre of it, you know, to, to sort of say, politicians are saying this, what might be really going on? And now you've got a whole generation of journalists who say, if you question what politicians are saying, you're getting into pretty dangerous territory there. You're getting into pretty dangerous territory. If you ignore the official spokespeople of the establishment, you're essentially a conspiracy theorist. You're, you know, two steps removed from being anti-Semitic. It's like, it's the opposite of what the spirit of journalism should be, which is to question everything and find out the truth. Whereas they're like, ooh, it's a bit suspicious that you want to know the truth, isn't it? Why don't you just accept what you're told? I, I, I find it incredibly frustrating. The new statesmen don't seem especially proud of their record over recent years. Potentially, that's why they're not particularly interested in the Ford Report, because although I'm not sure they're named, it doesn't really shower them with glory. In 2019, the New Statesman famously refused to endorse any party. So this is the tweet I'm from the Times. You can see the date, December the 14th, 2019. Our general election 2019 leader, why Britain deserves better and why we won't endorse any party. So obviously, I mean, what does that do other than help Boris Johnson get elected? What's interesting is if you click on the link there, that page no longer exists. So not only... Did the New Statesman not want to read a report which has been critical of how the media reported Labour and anti-Semitism? The report is explicitly critical of that, by the way. It says that a lot of this media coverage was wholly misrepresentative, right? Very, very explicit in that report. But now the New Statesman apparently wants to just delete all of their positions from the last five years from the historical record. Are they finally embarrassed about bringing about Boris Johnson's government? They should be. Let's go to our next story. The money-saving expert Martin Lewis has previously suggested that hikes to energy prices could cause civil unrest. Now, speaking to Robert Peston, he's clarified exactly what that means. The last time you were on the show, you warned that you feared there may be civil unrest. Do you still have that fear? Yeah, but I think I can, I can categorise it more accurately yes, now. Yes, please do. The big, the big movement that I am seeing is an increasing growth of people calling for a non-payment of the energy bills process. So a so strike, mass a strike. Effectively, a consumer strike on energy bills um, and, and getting rid of the legitimacy of paying that. It's small at the moment. There's a Twitter handle with about 5,000 followers. But every time I talk about this and every time I raise the alarm about what's oh. happening, I'm just, that is the big response I get back. And many people are spontaneously calling for that. We are getting close to a poll tax moment on energy bills coming into October. And we need the government to get a handle on that. Because, of course, once you start to get to that, suddenly everything gets it's exponential, the problems that you start to happen. Once okay. it becomes socially acceptable not to pay energy bills, people will stop paying energy bills. How do you enforce it? You're not going to cut people off. This is this is a real dilemma. So when I talk about civil unrest, yeah. it, it's more that yeah. than other forms. Now I so Martin Lewis was referring to a group called Don't Pay UK, 
This is how their website explains what they're about. So it says, millions of us won't be able to afford food and bills this winter. We cannot afford to let that happen. We demand a reduction of bills to an affordable level. We will cancel our direct debits from October the 1st if we are ignored. The campaign starts now with your help. And if you go to that website, you can sign up to sort of make the pledge that if a million people also make this commitment, you will stop paying your bills. Because the idea is that if enough people do it, it will be impossible you know, to cut off everyone. On Good Morning Britain, one of the organisers of Don't Pay UK explained how that action could work. Effectively, they, they will have to be brought to the negotiating table if, if enough people do this. I think we have to look at the system and, and how it's set up and look at the vast profits that have been made by the energy suppliers, the energy companies, and think, okay, that money could be redistributed. There is no need for these extortionate energy bills. What about the concerns regarding the, the legality of this, uh, Simon, and the fact that you're asking people to stop paying their energy bills, which of course could affect all sorts of things, uh, their credit rating could, have, could lead to criminal charges potentially if they're just seen to be stealing energy? Or well, they could be cut off. Yeah, so we're not advocating that, um, that anyone steals energy, uh, anyone abstracts electricity. What we're talking about here is a mass renegotiation so that we cancel our direct debits, we pay what we can afford, we pay, and I think if enough people do that, I think the companies, the government will have to see sense and come to the table. But isn't it stealing it, though, if you're, if you're using the electricity but you're not paying for it? No, and I think no, nobody's talking about not paying for the energy we use. We're talking about renegotiating the terms on which we pay for it. But you're just going to say, this is the price that I'm prepared to pay, no matter what the energy company has to pay to be able to get that well, energy I mean, to you? I mean, obviously, they're, they're in a position where they can effectively extort as much as they want to take. And we're saying, no, that's not acceptable. There's too many people in this country who cannot afford, now having to make this choice between heating and eating, and that's not acceptable. Good Morning Britain also had Martin Lewis on to talk about Don't Pay UK. The biggest single response I've had from people when I've been talking online uh, about the financial catastrophe that is coming this winter is people responding, what if we don't pay? So it was only waiting to happen for a, a group to get, get together to start to organise that. Now, I think the best way to approach this is that to be seen as a substantial warning sign to the government that more action is needed. Not paying is a form of civil unrest. It is a, a, a technically unlawful protest. And it's a protest that is akin to what happened to the poll tax when people simply said, this is not fair, we will not pay. And I understand the strength of feeling out there. That's pretty exciting. Mark Lewis sort of referencing the poll tax strike and we've got this movement now, it seems, calling for mass non-payment of, of energy bills. Aaron, do you think this, this movement could have legs? Could do. I think the, the easy analogue to the poll tax movement could be mistaken because that had years of, of institutional legwork. It had a lot of Trotskyists involved, the militant tendency and so on. And so it had a it had an organizational structure across the country. It starts in Scotland, it comes down to the rest of the UK after about six months a year. So I I I would be wary of easy an analogies and saying this is just like the poll tax, and there was a massive campaign of non-repayment, and then there was, you know, this huge protest in London, and there was a massive riot, and then Margaret Thatcher resigned. It had a great deal of organizing underpinning it. Now, in the 21st century, with smartphones and WhatsApp and email lists and social media. Yes, it's easier. You can create a movement more easily. 
But I still think you need all of that, personally. Could be wrong. I think for a non-repayment sort of movement or a non-payment movement involving potentially millions or at least hundreds of thousands, I, th I think you would need quite substantial organizing infrastructure. Who knows? I mean, I think for me, the, the nearest analog to this is in Spain with the Quince M movement in 2011. You know, these are campers. They start sitting out in town squares. You're very familiar with that, Michael. I think you were living in Spain at the time or maybe shortly thereafter. They organized those originally through, I think it was only a couple of hundred people, committees of six or seven people in a dozen cities and towns. And they managed to broker a kind of collective action, which over several months in 2011, it included millions of Spaniards, eventually created the political space for Podemos. But even that is more sort of institutional activist infrastructure than what the Don't, Don't Pay campaign has at the moment. That could change. So it could work. I wouldn't necessarily say, though, just like the poll tax happened, therefore, this will happen and it will be effective because that's a, that's a cognitive bias. I think it's poor analytical reasoning. But I think we're going to see something certainly that's, that's interesting. And what couldn't happen before, 20, 30 years ago, before the internet, before social media, what couldn't happen before is an action involving several people. You know, this originally started, don't forget, at the TUC demonstration not long ago. And I think they handed out some like 10, 20,000 leaflets around don't pay. Before, you couldn't have gone from that to Martin Lewis talking about something on, you know, daytime television within, what, six weeks? That is new. That's thanks to the internet. That's thanks to social media. Let's see how, how far that can go, though. I think it will be a big challenge. You know, it's a big ask to say, don't pay your bills. Because it is, I mean, I, I, I absolutely endorse the movement. I absolutely hope it's a success. But, I, you know, there, there is a big, you know, there are big challenge to overcome. An anecdote I have on this is sort of like during the pandemic, and me and my then partner sort of started paying 80% rent because we asked the landlord to get, you know, a reduction for, for COVID. Um, my then partner was, you know, self-employed, so lost a bunch of money. And we just thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll just pay the 80%. Da, 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 da. Then sort of six months ago, we've got like a six grand bill or something. And that you, you have to pay it unless you declare bankruptcy because the courts are in favor of the businesses and the courts are in favor of the landlords. So, you know, it's, it's, the law is on their side. Obviously, if you get a million people, then you can start having the kind of negotiating power that means that you can potentially even change the law, or you can make it you know, so difficult that the courts don't have time to, to make you pay those debts or whatever. But if you do any of that on your own, yeah, I mean, the, the law, unsurprisingly, is designed to protect the gangsters who own all of our homes and who ramp up the prices of energy bills. The RMT will be on strike again next week, and their general secretary, Mick Lynch, has been back on the BBC. The newscast discussion was pretty wide-ranging, but we'll start with the answer on who he'd prefer out of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss to be our next Prime Minister. I obviously don't want either of them, but I think well, there's, a real, one of them, so there's a real danger at the moment, I think, in this Tory contest. I think we've got a hard right uh, uh, cast of really? people. Is that, is that yeah, a reasonable Yeah, I think these are extremists. These are people that are saying we won't, virtually on the edge of saying that tax itself is abhorrent. And tax is a good thing in a progressive society. Tax is, is the means by which you create equality. And they are more or less saying to basically... You must be, you must be like a Rishi Sunak man then, because he's the one saying... Well, Rishi Sunak would get it back. I mean, they never put progressive taxes. Most of the taxes in this country are raised through VAT. And, and he wants to put corporation tax up. He good. wants to whack and the profits of the people you it, were just complaining should, about. Because, if, because what you can do about corporation tax, if you want to avoid it, you can reinvest in your workforce. 
and through research and development and, and retooling your company and creating more workers. That's the whole point of a corporation tax, that you do it through, you avoid it through a progressive means by saying, I'm going to get loads of apprentices, I'm going to bring in a more diverse workforce, I'm going to create job opportunities. Because then it hits your profits and you only pay tax on the profit. The thing is, that, I mean, you, you caricature the, the, this race as being one where tax is apparently abhorrent. I mean, tax is higher now collectively than it has been in decades and decades and decades. So is government spending by any modern comparison it, of any political party. You, you, that's the sort of thing you'd love well, yes, if it was delivered by needs, a Labour government. Tax needs to be high. But what we've got in this country, and this is never remarked on by the, by the media, even yourselves, those of us that are on PAY cannot afford uh, cannot avoid tax. We pay it out of our wages every week. There are many, many people in this country avoiding tax, like it's some kind of disease. That was Mick Lynch once again saying something no one else is willing to. Tax is good. It's what gives us decent public services. It's not something that we should try and minimise as much as possible as a society. But he also points out that it matters where taxes come from. For example, VAT isn't progressive. It means that poorer people end up spending a large proportion of their income on VAT than richer people do. Income tax and corporation tax is. And we're going to talk a bit more about corporation tax in one moment. And we've got another clip from Lynch. First, though, Aaron, it's good to see him back, isn't it? It's very good to see him back, Michael. I mean, we had a short recess period. I think it was, uh, I think it was extenuated by the fact that you know, he was embarrassing these people a little bit too much. So we're like, look, just, just only have him on when we absolutely have to. So, uh, and I, I believe also maybe he had COVID briefly when we saw Eddie Dempsey sort of filling in for him a week ago. And he did very well, Eddie Dempsey. Just incredibly articulate logic and arguments for progressive policy that you don't see from big house London pundits or from Labour politicians, really. Incredible lucidity. I tweeted earlier, isn't it remarkable? This is a guy who's left school at 16 to become an electrician, and he's showing far greater political literacy and persuasion and power of argument and cogency than three really well-paid BBC journalists. One comment was, oh, why are you putting down people who, who left school? Not at all. He's better than those guys at political analysis, at communications. He's also an electrician to boot, which I'm pretty sure, I might be wrong, but I doubt, you know, Chris Mason, Laura Koonsberg can screw in a light bulb or do anything more than that, you know, change a plug. So uh, it, it is interesting. I think it's as well, really, it's a really powerful, good thing that the British working class is now associating progressive ideas and values with a guy that looks and sounds like Mick Lynch. And that's fantastic. We need more of that. For too long, ideas of sort of left-wing socialist or so radical, radical social democratic policy and politics have been associated with younger university graduates. And with, I think, a, a little bit of justification. But the reality is there's a huge movement in this country, the labor movement, which believes in the power of working people and believes that fundamentally the fruits of our labor belong to the people who work. So uh, not renters, uh, landlords rather, not to profiteers, not to bosses. So it's great to see him. I think he's a great avatar for socialism and trade unionism in the 21st century. Long may it continue. I couldn't agree more. And I think actually the journalists have kind of learned that you don't try and destroy this guy and put him in a corner because it was a softer interview than ones we've seen before. And I think that's because they, well, one, it's a sort of informal, more informal podcast. But also I think they know if you give that guy shit, you're going to end up looking like an idiot. Anyway, moving on to the actual policy here. As you, as you saw in that interview, a myth has emerged that because Rishi Sunak wants to raise corporation tax, he's secretly left-wing. He's secretly a socialist chancellor. 
Now, that to me just shows how far British politics has shifted to the right, especially in the past 12 years. To see why, we can look at corporation tax rates over time in the UK. In the early 80s, they were over 50% of profits. Thatcher reduced the rate to 35%. Then New Labour dropped it to 30%. And it was after 2008 that it started tumbling again. When Cameron and Osborne came to power in 2010, corporation tax was at 28%. It's now at 19%. For his part, Sunak's plan is to raise it to 25%. Still a historically tiny figure and tiny when compared to the rest of the, the G7. It's very, very low. Yet that position sees him called a socialist in right-wing modern Britain. It's, it, it's incredibly depressing. The most moderate policies get called socialist. You know, no wonder Jeremy Corbyn got destroyed. You've got Tory Chancellor who wants to raise corporation tax to a level that's still lower than at any time in history before 2010. And yeah, he's, he's, he's going to get beaten by Liz Truss because she wants to cut taxes even more. Very depressing. Let's watch some more Mick Lynch to cheer us up. Is there something you've had to stop doing in your life? Because even though you know it's legit, if it got papped and put in the mail, you know that they would misinterpret it and it would harm your cause. Well, you'll be pleased to know that I've got the most boring regulation life. I'm a very, very traditional person. And I happen to have, you know, traditional trade union, old labour type politics. Now, maybe I'm just exceptional because that sort of thing has died out. But I'm hoping to articulate the case on behalf of a bit of fundamental redistribution of wealth and a square deal for working people. I think people have lost a lot of values. And I think the job of the trade unions at the minute is to re-establish some values about things like Commonwealth, things like, and I mean the real meaning of Commonwealth, things like shared shared uh, values, shared economy, that the economy itself has got to be shared. That's the and argument your movement's people, lost though, isn't it? It has lost it, but it stopped pursuing it because it lost it in the short term in the late 70s and early 80s, but it's never gone back to it. It's been afraid of itself. Conservatism isn't afraid of its traditional values. And if you take this government now and the candidates, who I think are extreme right-wingers, they would not hesitate to jump on a bit of jingoism and nationalism and anti-migrant feeling, and they do it all of the time. And they would ride that, that wave as like surfers. What Starmer and others on the front bench have got to do is ride some kind of solidarity wave. And we've got to have a summer of solidarity, I think, about the, just the word redistribution of wealth. Wealth in this country is too polarised. All right, and there are too many people really struggling. Remarkably simple, but remarkably effective. We need to talk more about the redistribution of wealth in this country because inequality is out of control. Aaron, will that serve as a wake-up call to Keir Starmer? I doubt it, Michael. I don't think Keir Starmer is again one of those clever clogs that doesn't, you know, genuinely doesn't think he's wrong, and I, I think he he lacks quite strong self-reflection capacities. I think if over a period of time, over a year, if Mick Lynch, you know was this sort of iconic figure and people were sort of taking the mickey out of um, Keir Starmer in the media saying, why can't you be more like Mick Lynch? Yeah, maybe. But uh, for now, no, that's, that's, not, that's not his style. That's not the style of, of the people around him. The, the thing on corporation tax, which I just find remarkable, you know, Thatcher reduced corporation tax, I think in, in 89 or 90 to 34%. That was the lowest it was ever under Margaret Thatcher, 34%, right? which is significantly higher than it is now. It's significantly higher than it was planned to be under Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. And they're saying, well, the tax tech now is bigger than ever before. Yeah, it's because VAT's gone up. It's because you're hammering middle income earners, right? 
it's like saying, well, you know, the size of the state, all this money we're generating from uh, student loans and all the interest we're putting onto graduates earning 30 grand a year who can't save anything to buy a house, but they can pay back their student loans. That's good, isn't it? A big state's good. No, a big state is not good if it's, if it's providing profits for shareholders in privately owned uh, rail operators or for, you know, water companies, or if the NHS increasingly is using outsourcing, which is inefficient, but it means more money. So that means it must be good. That's more socialist, right? If you're using more inefficient outsourcing and more resources, which needs higher taxes from middle income earners, great, that's socialism, right? No, it's not socialism. And I think there's been such an absence of, of thoughtful pushback to that, that when Mick Lynch comes along and sits down with them for an hour to talk about this stuff, they're like, what the hell is going on? Because remember, Michael, as, as many times as, as you or Ash or I or socialist left-wing journalists have been going into the mainstream media, particularly over the last sort of five years, it's very rarely been in the context of a serious policy debate. Labour would propose a policy like this, and then they viewed their job as saying, well, it's wrong, isn't it? That can't work, can it? You know, it can never serious, you know, having a rate of corporation tax still lower than Japan and California, two of the most innovative economies in the world, but that can't work, can it? You know, we're not dealing with serious people in legacy media. The great thing about Mick Lynch, you know, he hits a real sweet spot, is he's hugely informative and he pars the hell out of these people, but he's doing it in a really clever way and he's not being vicious to them in their faces, which is a gift. Very, very difficult to ruin somebody's logic so fastidiously, so quickly, so effectively without seeming mean. Very, very talented man. I agree. We've got to get him on soon. Our final story for the evening. It's been a pretty weird week in UK politics. Arch Thatcherite Rishi Sunak is being attacked as a socialist. And at a time when Britain wants to move on from joke prime ministers, we're about to get Liz Truss. But there's been one moment which has topped all of that when it comes to political peculiarity. It's that Dean Doris has made a good point. In response to an article by James Forsyth endorsing Rishi Sunak, she tweeted this. In fairness, shouldn't articles by James Forsyth promoting Sunak for Prime Minister not carry a disclaimer? At university together, best man at my wedding, godparents to children, etc., etc. And of course, I didn't think I'd ever be saying this on this show, but Nadine Doris is bang to rights there. James Forsyth and Rishi Sunak are best friends. Sunak was the best man at Forsyth's wedding. And these are facts which the time should the time story should be open about. Instead, this was presented as dispassionate journalism. And this wasn't the only fail the Times had this week regarding leadership endorsements. In an editorial, the paper wrote this. It now falls to the 200,000 members of the Conservative Party to exercise their judgment. Their task is not merely to choose a leader to serve a narrow partisan agenda, it is to elect a prime minister govern responsibly in the national interest amid economic crisis at home and tumult abroad. Only Mr Sunak has proven himself willing to confront the compromises and sacrifices this difficult moment demands. Tory members must recognise that the choice before them is between hard reality or consoling fiction. The voters will not forgive the party another fit of self-indulgence. Now, the Times backing Sunak is no surprise. He is thought to be in Rupert Murdoch's good books. But what has raised eyebrows is the Times' characterization of the election of Boris Johnson as a fit of self-indulgence on the part of Tory members. Why has that raised eyebrows? Because the Times are equally complicit. In a leader column during the 2019 leadership election, they backed Boris Johnson 
to be prime minister. So this, this wasn't the, the members being self-indulgent and going against all the sensibles in the press. The Times said in that leadership election, Boris Johnson is the right guy to become prime minister. Now they're rewriting history saying, oh, this was actually self-indulgence. I'm surprised they haven't, like the New Statesman, just deleted all of these past leaders, which have now been proven to be, you know, just wholly ridiculous. In 2019, the European elections, the Tories, I think, got something like 8%. The poorest showing they've got in a national election in, in a very long time, probably the best part of the century. Very, very bad. Labour did poorly, but not as poorly. And you're thinking, well, look, if Labour get on the right side of this Brexit debate, not only are we split on that, but also Jeremy Corbyn ends in number 10 Downing Street. And of course, it's panic stations. So if you are the Times or the Tory membership or anybody who wants an economy built around profit and you know helping the elite and not working people, then you're going to get behind the guy who's going to beat the opposition, which is Jeremy Corbyn. And the, the best option at that point was Boris Johnson. And a lot of people, of course, want us to just kind of memory hold that, including, yeah, a lot of people at the Times. And we've got to wrap up in one moment. First of all, we, we began this segment with Nadine Doris. Do you expect to see her be correct more often now? Now, now is she going to start moving to the right side of history? Well, there was this interesting article actually today written by Ed Conway from Sky, and he was talking about how Britain doesn't have a, a microprocessor strategy. We have this fabrication plant in Wales, and of course, chips are hugely important in televisions and mobile phones and in everything. And as a matter of national security, we need chip manufacturing in this country. And would you like to know which minister is partially in control of microprocessor production in this country, Michael? I, I, I follow you avidly on Twitter, so I already know, but I'm going to let you do the reveal. The Dean Dorries. <laughs> we don't need to worry about the Chinese, okay? <laughs> so, uh, we, we, so what's interesting is with microprocessors, because of course, DCMS includes digital. DCMS hired a policy person to look into how policy should work in this area. But then you've got BEIS, which is where you'd think this would fall under, sort of industrial policy. They're meant to be the ones responsible for this regend microprocessing fabrication plant and whether or not it can be sold to foreign entities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So look, when you've got Nadine Dorries in charge of high-tech industrial policy, you don't need to worry about the Kremlin or Beijing. Let's start with our homegrown problems first. It has a very good note to end the show on. Aaron, it has been an absolute pleasure as always being joined by you this Friday evening. My pleasure, Michael. I hope our wonderful audience has a great weekend. Thank you again for helping us get to 10,000 supporters. Brilliant way to end the week. Yeah, we did it. In case you didn't catch it, we did a celebratory question and answers session yesterday to mark getting to our 10,000 supporter target, which we are so, so grateful for. Thank you for watching tonight. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Have a great weekend. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.